You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove Podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. It's not not what I expected. Well, it feels again. plain in comparison yeah. to so many of his other yeah. things. It's unexpected. Yeah. Um, I was afraid to tell you I didn't like it. Let's just get it out there in the open. I was afraid <laughs> to tell you I didn't like it. And then in an hour later, I was I trying to bait you with that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it wasn't what you expected. I'll walk right out of this place. I feel like who Art Ed? Try to slice it. Who Art Ed? Mr. Wood, Art Ed, me. Yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Happy to be here. Yeah, today I am here with Mr. Boger. Prince, are you Scott? Scott Elementary yeah. School. Yeah. Principal Scott. Uh, thanks for taking the time to come over here. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ramir Bearden. First segment in C2, we're going to talk about the context. Then the second segment is going to be in gallery. We're just going to share what we see here. And then the final will be just, we'll go back and forth sharing our takeaways. What advice would you give someone based on what we're seeing, what we've learned? Okay. And awesome. I'm excited because you brought him to me. Like I, I was obviously familiar with Ramir Bearden, but you shared that you he was someone you've learned about, you've talked about, you've taught about. Even. Yeah. And and I always like to you know get that little bit of insight into someone like I I know you in another context. You know. Yeah. I yeah. knew you as my boss. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm a little trepidation here. Please. No. So I guess. Now for our first segment in C2, we're going to talk about the context. Now for our in C2 segment. It just gives us some context. It's about the artist and where this came from. Where this all came from. The first thing we always have to talk about is, you know, when and where the artist comes from. Ramir Bearden was born in 1914. He passed away in 1988. He was an American artist. He spent a while like, in, in different places, including he did a tour in World War II. One of the things that really struck me is like Bearden was a smart dude. Yeah. He did his homework. Um, you know, the piece that we're going to be looking at, he is referencing a 15th century painting that was referencing a 28th century BCE 
epic Greek poem. Um, you know, it's all based on the Odyssey, but yeah. what Ramir Bearden was doing in, in his painting was he was referencing um, Pint, Pinterichio, Pinterichio's. Yeah, I, I had know. no idea. Yeah. I thought it was a type of cheese. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was a fresco it was a fresco from 1505 um, and it is basically showing the return of Odysseus. Right. And, you know, broad strokes the story of the Odyssey. Odysseus um, went off to fight in the Trojan War, 10 years battling, 10 years to get back. He gets back and um, Penelope, his wife, basically everyone thinks he's dead, you know, because he's been gone for two decades. And rather than say, hi, I'm home, I guess he disguised himself to compete with the other people who were courting her. And I guess back in those days, if you could string a bow, someone would marry you because that was the test that he passed. Is that right? Is that that's, easy? That's, that, that was, like she said, like whoever can string this bow, whoever can string Odysseus's bow, that's who can have my hand. I just, um, off topic, but I wonder how that correlates to what it takes nowadays. But it's beyond it's just, the scope of this. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess in some ways that's utilitarian, so maybe right. it's more rational than, but... Uh, yeah, great point. You know, yeah. Um, you know Things were things were uh, bananas three thousand years ago. Right. Because also, like, she didn't think it was him. But I think, if I recall correctly, you know, and now I'm trying to recall back like twenty years. If I recall correctly, uh, it was something like she didn't think it was him, even after he revealed his identity. And then, you know, the the way she like put him to the test, she asked him to move the bed. And the one of the posts of the bed was like built on a living tree or something ridiculous like that. And he's like, nope, can't do it because part of it's built on a tree. And apparently she thought he's the only one who would know that. Wow. I don't know what the other Greek men of that time were doing, that they didn't notice a living tree growing <laughs> out of a corner of a bed. But, yeah. um, you know, that was, that was the test. Yeah, now I got to get back on topic. Yeah, so, like, you know, the I I always think of like Renaissance. You know, the the Italian Renaissance was happening, happening, and Pinturichuro, ugh, I cannot pronounce the name. But that kind of goes to show, like, this was not a household name. Also, right. like this painting that Bearden is referencing, it's not like he was, you know, referencing Leonardo. It was, you know. Right. Not an insignificant Renaissance painter, but not one that just everybody on the street is going to know. And Ramir Bearden is reimagining that scene because part of what Bearden was was thinking about, um, you know, and this is the 1960s, we're talking the civil rights era. Right. A lot of African-American artists were thinking about representation and how important it is for people of different cultures, particularly oppressed cultures, to be able to see themselves in the mythology, in the stories of the time. And so he's replacing the Caucasian figures of the dominant culture from this ancient, I mean, it's one of the oldest recorded epics that we have still around, the Odyssey and the Iliad, um, almost 3,000 years old. He's replacing those quote-unquote timeless figures that are the are sort of archetypes from history and he's showing black people 
in those roles because he, I think what Bearden said was he wants someone, whether they're from Louisiana or Benin to be able to see themselves in those stories. Right. And I think it's also for an audience, you know, that's not African-American for the Caucasian people to be able to see an African-American or an Indian American or not even American, but a person of color of another culture in those stories and in those heroic archetypes. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to think of what someone that would see this that was familiar with the other print and how it would change their view looking at at a, at a person of color in the picture as yeah. opposed to somebody that is more lighter skin and how that might change their meaning or their, their impression as well. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask you a quick yeah, question on this note? And, and maybe uh, this is a, a layman question, a non-artist. But do you think that Romare Bearden had a story to tell and he went and found a piece that fit the story he wanted to tell? Or did he look at this print and say, wow, now that I've seen that, I'm inspired to, to make some changes? Um, in other words, which came first here? You know, I think part of what probably drew him to the story of Odysseus, just thinking about he was an African-American who put it all on the line serving in World War II. Absolutely. He comes back and he is a second-class citizen. And I think of, um, you know, Odysseus was a hero in the Trojan War. And he has this epic, long trial like trials and tribulations on his way home he gets home even his wife doesn't recognize him and right. he has to prove himself to regain um, that status that he had once earned that he had once enjoyed back home and I think you know Ramir Bearden he didn't have that status to begin with he right. was struggling to get that his whole life and I mean Not to say that in his entire life he never had status. He did become a prominent, well-respected artist and and everything like that. But just, you know, returning home as a soldier, uh, if I recall correctly, he wasn't like one of the prominent artists in World War II. Just another fascinating tangent. Are you familiar with the Ghost Army in World War II? Fascinating story. In World War II, the Allies... Um, they had a platoon of artists that were engaged in all sorts of misdirection. So when the Allies were planning to storm the beaches of Normandy, there was a platoon of artists that created inflatable tanks and they used sound to create the illusion. Like they had recordings of sound, of construction, of loading trucks, of like train tracks and all that sort of stuff happening to create the illusion that they were going to land in Calais. Wow. Now, I've heard the story about the, the yeah. creating the illusion. I guess I just didn't think they were yeah. artists. Yeah, it was referred to wow. as the ghost art army. Some prominent artists, uh, Ellsworth Kelly and some others from that time were a part of it. Wow, fascinating. But yeah, um, interesting aside. But like I say, he was part of the armed forces. He came back. He was having to fight for his rights. He was having to be, fight for equality. And, you know, sadly, in many Many cult, like many parts of our society, that's still a struggle for people. Sure, oh, it is 100%. a struggle that continues, and I think you know he had some empathy with with that. Is what I what I see in terms of the relevant context. No, I agree completely. I think uh, um, you know just like with Odysseus, I think uh, even even. Um, you know, c- coming back from the war. And I'm sure yeah. he felt like he'd had to do something to make up that ground and, and reprove himself. Yeah, Odysseus disguised himself, but even w- without the disguise, he had to sort of fight and prove himself to be seen. 
and to be recognized. And I think that recognition and being seen and being seen for who you really are, I think that was sort of central to Bearden and a number of other artists at that time. Like I said, he was part of a collective. Yeah. So it it sounds like if you go back to the original question that perhaps he was inspired... um, well, let me. He, he had a story to tell based yeah, on what you just said, so. and found a piece that fit that that he could modify, and not the other way around. Yeah, I th- you know he transformed it and made it contemporary. Right. right. So I think Good. now we will shift towards our second segment, which is going to be our in gallery segment. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Now for our in-gallery segment, we're going to have a discussion looking more carefully at one piece. What's jumping out to you? What do you notice? Well, when I, I, so I wouldn't, I'm far from an art connoisseur, um, but when I first see that, I would have probably uh, um, acted like I knew more than what I actually know, and I would have said, (laughs) that looks like Jacob Lawrence to me. You know, prominent characters about the Great Migration. Um, I see the big prominent hand sticking out. So if I was around uh, someone not uh, as art savvy as you, I'd go, yeah, that's actually a Jacob Lawrence print, I could tell. Uh, but I see the similar similarities with, um, and I don't know how to put this into art terms, obviously it was a collage, c- correct? Yeah. So so he just has, you know, very um, very few different colors in there. I don't know. So in other yeah. words, I think the original one, he was wearing like a sporting some uh, golfer-looking golfer uh, plaid pants, you yeah. know, and, and there it's boom, just one color. Um, you know, she's wearing just the one color. So I guess I'd said all that to say there's not a lot of um, different colors and uh, one color per major item. So that sticks out to me as, uh, in one way. Yeah, it, he's reducing things to flat shapes of color. Right. Um, you know, most of the, the dress mo- is, is one flat shade of blue because it's a cut, cut, a cut piece of paper okay. representing that. Um, you know, everything is flat. There's really minimal, if any, shading. There are some slight embellishments, I think particularly like around the bow, there's a little bit more detail in the top left corner. Yeah. But it's low contrast. There's very little difference between the blue of the sky and the blue of the dress. He's repeating some of those same colors in different areas. One of the prominent things that I noticed compared to the 15th, uh, 15th century, it's 16th century, well, right. 1505. Right. Um, one of the primary differences, obviously, is he has replaced the Caucasian people with black people. Right. And um, But the other thing that strikes me, I think you are right in the connection to Jacob Lawrence, just because stylistically I do see some similarity in terms of simplifying the simplifying the the shapes, the arrangement of the composition, but also the um, the sort of flatness of all of the color. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's some stylistic similarity there. We're losing a fair amount of details, and like at first the the central darker brown. Um, not quite rectangle, quadrilateral. It's the that's the frame of a loom. But since we can't see the detail of the strands, like it's 
it it almost looks like just an empty box with right. two, two tassels hanging or something like that. But that is a loom. We see a bird sort of perched above that. We see a ship off in the distance, which is obviously like through the window. We're referencing like sort of that ship is behind him. And, you know, he is now on land in his home. And we see some other figures towards the right-hand side of, of the of the picture, um, which is obviously the, the other gentlemen who were trying to court, um, his wife's affections at that point, we see one of the servants, one of Penelope's servants in the bottom left corner. Um, and I think if I recall correctly, there was one servant who recognized Odysseus when he returned and he swore her to secrecy. So I think that was kind of uh, I think that's rep- representing uh, her. In Interesting. There. You know, I noticed Odysseus is wearing, uh, he's got the gold or the yellow, uh, the, the yellow hat and the yellow up around, you know, the, the yeah. breast. So um, clearly that hasn't changed in uh, in many, many years that the guy that has the fanciest clothes uh, usually gets the girl. Yeah. You know, you look at the folks in the back and, <laughs> and they're just kind of there, but, but he's kind of uh, dressed to the nines and uh, to me, it looks very obvious that he's somebody that's uh, more important than the other folks standing there. The yeah. yellow kind of stands out to me. Yeah. And what I find interesting in looking at the progression, um, you know, the the 16th century piece, it, it showed um, the figures as Renaissance people in Renaissance attire. Like, it didn't seem ancient Greek in the way that they were dressed. And then Bearden is making it only slightly more contemporary. Like the silhouette still feels Renaissance to me. Like the clothes still look and feel sort of puffy. It's not like a 1960s ship in the background. But he has made it more contemporary sort of stylistically in making it that collage. you know, he he's sort of flattening and playing with the, the the color scheme and and distorting shapes and obviously, you know, changing the culture of it is another more sort of uh, way of contemporizing it or contemporizing it. Man, uh, it's, it's like David Sedaris, he, you know, talked about <laughs> like how artists would conjugate nouns. Um, I love it. But... Um, it's just another way to be him. Yeah, it's making him. He's making it a little bit more contemporary, but not drastically. It doesn't feel like four hundred yeah. years forward. No. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, and I feel a little bit of silly asking this. I when I had to take one art appreciation class, and I remember getting uh, annoyed because we talked ad nauseum, like thirty minutes, about why the horse was reared back on three legs and one leg was up off the ground, and everybody was going round and round. I was like, "How much longer till the class is over?" Maybe that's just (laughs) the way the horse was. But I found myself when I was looking over this this morning that the bird in the upper left-hand corner seems to stick out more to me in this one in um, you know Bearden's than than the previous one, and it's the it, it's obviously a very uh, stark contrast between the black bird and the blue background. Yeah, is there any purpose in that bird besides it just as a bird? Again, I feel like that guy that's saying uh, you know waxing philosophic about the horse and three legs as opposed to four. Well, the thing is, I think, you know, especially when we talk about like classical compositions, a lot of times things are sort of visual metaphor. Um, You can always make arguments about what different things are meaning. Like 
you know, metaphor means different things to different people. Sure. And I think with anything that we're looking at, we start by identifying what do we see? There's a blackbird. What connections can we make? What what meanings and inferences can we draw from that? Um, blackbirds, there's a history of blackbirds sort of representing uh, like wisdom and things like that. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm 100% confident that that's what's represented here. I'd say I'm like 75% because Odysseus as a figure was sort of a wise figure in what he was doing in the Trojan War and everything like that. So, like, there's some parallel with what those characters can can represent. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's sort of how we decode things. As we, like you say, that jumps out at you. That, that doesn't happen by accident. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially gets- in this image, like... So much of it is low contrast, but as you said, there is there are these shocks of white on our central figure. There are shocks of white on not just the Odysseus figure, but also at the 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 ends of the sleeves of Penelope, who's sitting at the loom, and those are the brightest spots that are going to grab your attention on those two central figures. Everyone else is a little bit more sort of muted and in the background. And I kind of, one of my frustrations with this piece is everything is muted and everything feels background. Um, And I guess, I think we should sort of shift towards a little bit of that evaluation piece because I think we've described it quite a bit. Yeah. What what do you think of this piece? You know, I I think that um, I... When I first learned about Romare Bearden, I was uh, exposed to um, the um, the block. Yeah, and so and it's I was really into the Harlem Renaissance at the time, and I'm really into jazz, and so I really got into Romare Bearden. I there was a book, a picture book, uh, me and Uncle Romy that I used in my classroom. And so when I saw this piece, I was a little bit disappointed because I thought, where's all the color? Yeah. Where's all the energy? Like, I, I feel like you could just feel the vibe in, his, in the work. And yeah, in some this, of his jazz stuff is fantastic. Oh, yeah. So then when I saw this, I was like, huh, like you said, it's kind of the muted colors. Uh, not as much stands out. Uh, only when I got the, more of the background and I started making the connection between, uh, you know, perhaps coming back from World War II or the civil rights movement um, and the connection between that and Odysseus, did I find it, um, I, did I appreciate it more? Just yeah. on aesthetic value alone, uh, I didn't get much out of it. You know, that's fair enough. And I think it's worth talking about the fact that art doesn't have to be pretty. The, the intention of an artist is not always to make it aesthetically pleasing. The intention of the artist can be to make it thought-provoking. You know, in this case, a lot of Bearden's intention was the representation, the narrative, and, you know, symbolic. In terms of the aesthetics, I, I'm i conflicted. On the one hand, I can see what you're saying. Like, it, it doesn't have that, that warmth, that life. On the other hand, it is so cool. It is so muted. And I think of a, a, a few things. You know, I think of, like, when we talk about jazz, I think of, like, you know, the birth of the cool and stuff like that. Um, but I also think of, um, you know, there's a little bit of, like, Picasso in the blue period and the sadness and that monochromatic, like, it's low contrast. It makes it harder to see from a distance. But at the same time, an artist can sometimes make things purposefully frustrate you because it makes you 
sit there and puzzle over it. It makes you think, it draws you in. And then once you solve that puzzle, once you see how the pieces fit together, you feel like you're smart because you get something that other people don't. And that smug sense of superiority I love it. is the thing that I love about art, especially when I see something that is so esoteric. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like I, I see something that is really esoteric like this that is referencing so many, so many different things, old visual art and old literature. And it's like I have found my fellow nerd. I feel a connection to him when I start to get those references. And I think I don't like, as a rule, art to be exclusionary. And I think this is not exclusionary. I think this is purposefully inclusive. And there are different different levels at which anyone can jump into this. And I think the first and most important is he is representing people who were not always prominently represented. And I think that is a high and worthwhile goal. And so I respect it for that. But I also just, I appreciate the coolness. There's a calmness to it. There's there's the curves. There's also just a sadness to it. There's yeah, almost resignation when I think of like that cool, calm, but sad. It's, you know, it's, it's it's not angry. It's not in your face. But, you know, you, you feel for it. Right. There's you know? almost an uneasiness because their hands, not knowing, if you don't know the story, when you look at that, their hands, hers is not just quite above his. There's still a little bit of distance between them. Yeah. You know, they, they, they might not get there. So there's almost a, um, a are, sense of dissonance that, that, that they're not actually going to. Uh, but they um, are reaching towards each other. Yeah. You know, they're going towards each other, but they're not quite there. It's, it's not quite resolved. And I think, you know, I think that's interesting. And, and, and in this piece, I, I appreciate it. This has a calmness, a coolness that gives me space to reflect. You know, the more time I, the more time I spend thinking about it, the more I appreciate that choice. It's not, it's not loud. It like, you know, my personal style in art, everything I make is turned up to 11 on every square inch of it, you know? I go to 11. Yeah, it's one louder. Yeah. But, um, but you know, when I see something that is just, it's all unified. It's all tied together. It all fits. And, and in some ways, like, I don't know how it fits. I don't know how it works. And that's part of what I respect about it. Yeah. You know? And you captured uh, maybe uh, more articulately what I was saying. When I first looked at it, I thought, hmm, that's not the block. Yeah. Um, that's not, uh, you know, again, I see folks walking a stroller down and there's a jazz musician, there's a homeless man, there's an angel up in the front. Of the, and I looked yeah. at this and I thought, hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of boring. But the more uh, that I read about it, the more yeah. you shared, the more you've talked about it, the more I feel like I get it and, and appreciate it and understand it. Uh, perhaps I'm one step closer to being the beatnik I always wanted to be. <laughs> I don't know. But in all, yeah. I, I didn't mean to say this, but I think about like when I've tried to read the beat, the, you know, like the beat poets, like. Okay, I just don't understand Jack Kerouac. This is boring. I want to go back to Louis L'Amour where the guy loses his horse or whatever. I would be, keep it simple. Um, I want action. But, yeah, I want action. Yeah. Holders, but mainly action. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, one more little, very, very quick story. I yeah. promise you. Dr. Jerome Harsty, uh, was, I guess he was kind of a big wig. He, when I went back to uh, uh, grad school to become a teacher, yeah. And he taught. We had to keep an art journal. We had to draw different things. And I never really understood why am I in this uh, uh, methods and literacy class, and you're making me draw two or three. I didn't get it until long after. But I think he was talking about the ability to make meaning, uh, whether it's through uh, text, uh, visual, audio, um, you know print all different types of ways to make meaning yeah 100 percent. it's all art just different media right i always like to wrap this segment by asking where does this piece belong like i always feel like like i always feel like museums and galleries are these just unnatural like blank white cages for art and different pieces have different purposes like if you could take this out of the museum where should this go yeah you know uh an hour ago i had a different answer but the more we've talked about it the more i think this could be a, a, a mural on a building in downtown where people can sit around and see it and engage in it and talk about, uh, especially as you you know get to know about Bearden and, and his influence on, obviously, a product of the Harlem Renaissance, but his influence on the civil rights movement, yeah. that, that maybe this would promote uh, conversation that uh, is a little more relevant to some of the challenges going on today. 100%. Uh, I, I feel like I've been remiss by not mentioning he was born uh, and grew up during the Harlem Renaissance, you know, 1920s. Um, you know, he was born 1914, but he grew up Harlem Renaissance. And so that was obviously informative. Um, and this piece was created during the, the civil rights era. I, I agree. I feel like because it is so much about representation, it should be out in the public and it should be large format. But I, I feel like this should be blown up and put like, it should be put on like Navy Pier. I yeah, feel like it's just, that's it's exactly. Just, you know, like I, you know, because on the Even one better. hand, you know, it's it's out in the public in a place that people go, but also you just want to think like when you go to the docks, when you go to the marina, do I remember? Like remember, Gilligan thought he was just going for three hours, and it was like. You know, Odysseus thought he was just going to go fight the Trojans. Right. It was 20 years. Yeah. You never know what could come, come up. Right, yeah. You know. Uh, yeah, and I've always wondered if Gilligan actually uh, ended up with Marianne or not. Why did he pack so much on a three-hour tour? <laughs> and now for our in-studio segment. In-studio Think about what strategies are working. Take it. Good Make artists. Make it your own. Copy. Great artists. Steal. Go ahead, steal this art. Make it your own. These are the takeaways. This is what you can apply to your own work. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Yeah, I can go first. Uh, I think uh, understanding the, uh, the, the context of when it was created, and if I didn't know anything about the Odyssey, um, or I made some assumptions about what I knew, I wouldn't have made these connections as well. So yeah. I, I think that um, aesthetically this wasn't pleasing to me, but the more I did research, the more I understood it. Yeah, and what I'm hearing you say is, you know, an an artist who makes personal connections and makes art based on their on things that are really significant and meaningful to them, that makes it engaging to to the informed viewer. It's not just something we recognize, but something that's meaningful and important, and it right. has an impact on people. Right, and maybe um, that's why. Again, I, I like this so much more an hour later. This is, uh, you know, when you think about what he experienced when he came back, yeah. when, when you think about the civil rights, that's something that I'm passionate about, something I like to read about. Um, and so that's why I made that much more of a connection. Yeah. And, I made, and it became personal to me yeah. uh, to a certain degree. You know, whenever we understand people, I don't, I, anyone I get to know better, I always like them better. 
Absolutely. Whenever I, whenever I pick at something, whenever I, whenever I talk to a person, whenever I get to know someone better, or when I get to know a piece better, when I, whenever I study something, I always find more that I appreciate and enjoy about it. Hundred um, percent. So putting yourself and your personal story and your ideas into your work is uh, very good. Make something that's meaningful and personal. You know, one thing I, I was going to share as a takeaway is just looking at this, an analogous color scheme, or this is almost monochromatic, mono meaning one and chroma meaning color. So it's various shades of one color. Um, this is a little bit more analogous where there are, you know, blues and greens, colors that are similar to each other. It all feels tied together. It all feels very calm and it can be very soothing. But as we said, it can also be a little bit boring if you don't do something else to create contrast. And so some people will create contrast through different textures. Some people will create contrast through light and dark. Some people will create contrast through size or through you know geometric versus organic shapes. But without that contrast, it's hard to see things from a distance. And I think that's why you first looked at this and said, it feels boring. If you want your work to stand out from a distance, if you want it to catch people's eye just as they're passing by, you need that contrast, that difference between some of the elements. If it's not the colors, it should be the textures or the shapes or the patterns. And in this print, what would you say? Can you give me an example of, uh, of what you saw when you... When well, the shock of, you see the shock of white. You and I are standing looking oh, right. at it from 20 feet away. You see that, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. That is the brightest of all, all the, the colors within this composition. Right. It, and, and especially because it's put next to some darker grays and darker blues and things like that, it stands out. It's that contrast, that difference. That's what, grabs, that's what first grabs people. Right. You can tell who the lead actor is and the yeah. uh, supporting cast yeah. in this picture yeah, with yeah. the contrast. It, it's a spotlight on them. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to share? No. One other thing I would say, if you like making collages, the colors don't always have to be flat. So many students go straight to just plain colored construction paper. But I always think of like Eric Carl, Hungry Caterpillar, paints the papers, lets it dry, and then he meticulously cuts them out. So he's got cut shapes of painted paper that has that texture that gives it a little bit more warmth and variety. Um, what, What a number of artists do and I believe Eric Carl would fall under this camp, is they paint papers, they color, stamp papers, let it dry, and then on another piece, they'll draw out their composition on like blank white paper, say. You cut out those shapes and use the cut shapes as a stencil to cut out your patterned and textured and wow. painted papers. It, it just gives it so much more warmth and life. Patterned fabrics, all sorts of things beyond just the flat construction paper. Kyle, same, uh, I don't know if this is relevant to our conversation, of that same professor, he's retired now. I, I, I assume he's still got work out there. He's written yeah. a few bucks. So we did exactly that. He had all different, he had wrapping paper. He had scrap papers. We painted papers. Yeah. We ripped them up. We had all these papers. We had no idea why we were doing it. Frankly, I was like, I'm wasting my money. I'm not learning anything about being a teacher. And then we made, in the An style of Eric Carl. sweater collage. <laughs> I still can fit in the pants. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But can I just, I didn't yeah. get it at the time. Um, but, but, 
uh, you know, we made art out of that, and it was a different texture and the yeah. color and all of that. And he made us articulate and write about what, how it made us feel and why we chose that. Yeah. And again, it was making meaning through a different medium. Yeah, and one thing I want to wrap with, which I just love, I've heard you say multiple times, I didn't get it at the time. Right. I feel like that is the story of my life. <laughs> and, and like so many things I look back on that I used to drive my teachers nuts saying, what's the point? I don't care. I don't like right. this abstract stuff. What's the point? Jackson, Paul, he, anyone can spill on a canvas. <laughs> but as soon as I find myself saying that, I stop. Because one thing I have learned is that is the surest sign that a year from that point, that is going to be what I find to be the most interesting and informative idea. Absolutely. Um, and always be open to new learning. Because, Absolutely. Because when you say, I don't get it, or there's no point, I don't see the point in this. You should put a yet at the end of it. Oh, uh, absolutely. I don't get it yet because almost always there is a point that you just gotta you gotta find, and when you find it, you'll appreciate it. I think of the Zen and the art of uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. You got the uh, uh, the the scientist and the artist, and I and you know, and I, I'm not even gonna begin to say I understood that book. It was kind of like what I was talking I've, about the beat, folks. You know, <laughs> I reject your premise. <laughs> you love it, art, art. <laughs> is science. Science is art. Our art is the product of human creativity. Science is testing hypothesis. Both are the process of innovation and discovery. Okay, that, that you're going to think I'm just agreeing with you too, and I'm not. Let the record <laughs> state. But when I read that book, I was like, this is the whole point. There's two kinds of people in this world. You got the scientist. He was a guy that was tweaking his motorcycle, you know, every 300 miles. And you had the artist that was just going until it sounded really bad, and then he was throwing a can of oil in. And so the, when I read that book, I was like, yep, there's two kinds of people in this world and no, no in between. Now yeah. I look back at that book and I think exactly what you said. Man, I gotta say, thank you so much for taking the time, especially since we've gone way over. I'm gonna have another long episode, but I just feel like you bring so much to it. So many connections, so many, so much energy to everything. I love it. So well, thank you so much for taking the time. Kyle, I absolutely enjoyed it. I enjoyed leading up to it. I enjoyed looking at the art. I enjoyed uh, understanding it more. I've, uh, uh, again, I'll go back to the, I felt like I'm more of an artist than I was an hour ago. Um, uh, <laughs> That's um, my goal is to make people feel like an uh, okay, artist. Okay, good. Well, I'm not going to grow a goatee. All the, all the parents come in, they're like, I'm what you're doing is great. I would, I'm not artistic. I can't draw. I'm not artistic. Not artistic. It's no. like, there's just a generation of our teachers that made everyone feel terrible. Well, you, you do an amazing job. I was told I was terrible. Get out of here. Yeah. I, I was, I was told I was inept as a painter. I was told that my, my drawings looked freakish. Um, I, I went to the Art Institute on a scholarship for painting and drawing, but but my my teacher told me, bef like you know, before that in the one art class I took before that, I was terrible at it. I want to talk to that teacher. <laughs> Thank you so much. Podcast done.